Hello, welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today's podcast episode is a recording from a webinar we held in September of 2022. This webinar was focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine as the conflict entered its seventh month. Participants of our webinar were Major General James Spidermark, Lieutenant General Frank Kearney, Peter Chur, and Rachel Washburn. Here's Rachel to start the conversation. Good afternoon and welcome to Academy Security's latest geopolitical webinar. As we enter the seventh month of the war in Ukraine, we hope to provide some insights as to the current dynamics of the conflict, some productive analysis on the increasing rhetoric on the use of nuclear weapons, and some takeaways on how this conflict informs and impacts other relationships and events around the globe. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by General Spider Marks, our Head of Geopolitical Strategy, and General Frank Kearney. Today, providing the so what and the market overlay for our geopolitical discussion is Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. General Marks, I want to open up the floor to you. Um, back in December, when rhetoric started ratcheting up and there were concerns about what is going to be um, the fate of Ukraine, you were very confident in saying that you felt an invasion would occur by February. Uh, in our December Around the World product, we have you quoted saying that. And, while the specifics of how it would unfold um, surprised many of us, you know, we were pretty confident that this conflict would um, eventually occur. So now that we're in the seventh month and there have been plenty of surprises and plenty of coordination around the globe, um, how do you see the conflict today? What have we seen? Um, and and you know, where, really where should we start the conversation given the, last event, the events of the last seven months? Well, Rachel, thanks very much. And everybody, thanks for joining us uh, this afternoon. Frank, it's good to see you. And Peter, it's always great to be with you as well. Um, Yeah, so we look at what has happened over the course of the last seven months. Um, In many cases, we have been surprised, irrespective of the fact that I would say with a level of confidence that there was unanimity within the geopolitical intelligence group of Academy Securities that the Russians would invade Um, all of us having been in service to nation in the uniform of our military service understands, we understand intimately that it's very difficult to deploy a 200,000 person force and have that force lean forward in the middle of the winter and conduct exercises and not have them ultimately be engaged in some way. It just seemed like there was just so much momentum and that the Russians were leaning forward And it appeared very, very obvious to us, we've been in the business for a while, that an invasion of some sort, an invasion of some sort would occur. Um, And that's clearly clearly what happened. And you're absolutely spot on. In many cases, the modalities and the very specifics um, unfolded in a number of different ways. But it was, we we stated with some degree of certainty that yeah, it was gonna happen. Um, We were surprised, frankly, with, the fact that the Russian leadership, in particular Putin, I need to say, took Clausewitz and Sun Tzu and threw both of those fellows outside the window and he overestimated himself and he underestimated his enemy. Two absolute sins you never wanna commit in terms of forcing yourself to make a decision and then committing young, young men and women into combat. You wanna make sure that you afford yourself time opportunity, sufficient training, and you want to make sure you're postured for those potential eventualities that you may not be able to plan for. 
Clearly, the Russians thought they would invade Ukraine, they would be welcomed, and, and Ukraine immediately upon invasion, clearly within 72 hours, would be a Russian vassal state or municipality. Kyiv would be the capital of a new vassal state on the border of Russia. Clearly, none of that happened. The Russians were pushed back because of the creativity of an amazing force of Ukrainians that were that are still fighting for their sovereignty and their independence. That's the difference between the Ukrainian military that we say that we see today, which is fighting a 21st century war. The Russians are fighting a 20th century war. Ukrainians are fighting for, for sovereignty. Russians are fighting for paychecks and in many cases a bucket of lies. Um, the Russians now are concentrating, and Putin has made it very clear that the Donbas, the landmass, and Crimea remain his objective. That's his winning narrative. Zelensky, on the other hand, has an equally compelling and winning narrative, which is we're still sovereign in Ukraine. We may have lost 15 to 20% of Ukrainian territory, but we are not going to give up the fight. The juncture where we are right now is you have a president in Ukraine who is making what I would call maximalist, stating maximalist objectives, yet what NATO is doing, led by the United States, is not in concert to meet those objectives. In, in other words, Zelensky wants everything back. He wants Crimea, he wants the Donbass, he wants this land bridge between the, those two areas to go back to Ukraine, and he is dedicated to achieving that. I don't see that what NATO is doing right now is in a position that will allow him to do that. So in fundamental, in a fundamental sense, what we have is an ends and a means mismatch. We're at a position where we're at a frozen conflict and what we're seeing today in Ukraine is most likely what we're going to see over the next couple of years. Let me stop right there and, and hand it off to my dear friend and colleague, Frank Kearney. Thanks, Spider. Uh, great insights. Uh, good to be with Academy Securities and the, and the group as well. Um, one of the things that strikes me about all this is it's really, um, there's been a change in the centers of gravity uh, in this. I mean, clearly, initially, it was Kyiv, uh, and, and it caused the government to, to collapse inside of the Ukraine. But now it's changed to a matter of national will. But the information war and the performance by the Ukrainian army has shifted that center of gravity, which they were protecting. And now they have transgressed into a very positive one on their side of strong national will. I mean, the people of that country are behind their leadership. The leadership is behind their army. Their army fights uh, in a decentralized manner where the president isn't very involved in telling uh, the chief of staff of the army how to fight and they are winning. And when you take a look at that and extend it down even further, leadership matters. It is that leadership at the lower levels of the Ukrainian army that are allowing innovation, creativity, uh, and the opportunity to take advantage of the tactical situation on the ground uh, for strategic effects. And Zelensky is doing a great job in the influence campaign and the information war. Clearly, he is winning that and doing it in spades. I don't know whether his talents as an actor, uh, his uh, fast ability to learn uh, and, and be able to script things and do things, 
but he has masterfully outplayed Putin uh, in the information and influence side of this. Now you see the national will in uh, in Russia, uh, you know, wobbling a little bit. Now the depth of that and whether Putin and his team can crush that uh, is, uh, is, is, is not without uh, the, the realm of possibility. I mean, clearly he can shut things down, shut down the news, shut down the access. Uh, but I mean, actually, even the, the Ukrainian uh, radio systems and television systems are able to be seen inside of Russia. So they have a good idea what's going on, even though we're trying to shut things down. So this battle of national wills and the clash of two key leaders remain the center of gravity but it's it's moving. I mean, it's it's much more than just topple the leader uh, and, and things will happen. And I think we need to keep our eye on that inside of Russia as well. You know, a lot of the rhetoric that uh, that is going on right now, the nuclear rhetoric, uh, it would really be in Russia's best interests for if they choose to use nuclear weapons for the United States to respond or NATO to respond in a way that 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 Putin was able to play that out as a victimization. Yeah, I told you that they were really waiting for the opportunity to come in and, uh, and, and attack the Soviet Union, or I mean, excuse me, Russia, and, and, and do things there. So he has a, a card he can play, should we not have a great balanced response to whatever he does here in the future with this large-scale mobilization, the fact that he'll probably continue to use terror tactics, and the fact that he continues to threaten this nuclear response. Uh, again, what we want to do is win that battle of national wills inside of Russia, uh, as well as the one that we are winning and playing very, very well inside of the Ukraine. So I'll, I'll leave it there uh, to you, Spider, or Peter, or Rachel. If I can, let me pile on real quickly onto what Frank just said. Public comments, um, especially in the realm of the use of nuclear weapons, are, um, as we all have come to realize, are the realm of bluster. It's those private conversations which are the realm of very seriousness. Um, it also applies to what we see in terms of the political statements that are being made on both sides. We, we truly understand that. And I would say that one of the challenges that President Zelensky has is that, albeit he has maintained the sovereignty of, of Ukraine and inarguably is the George Washington of Ukraine, um, at the same time, he's lost 15 to 20% of Ukraine. Zelensky may go the way of a Churchill, which is he's the guy who won the war, but he's not going to be the guy to win the peace because there are private conversations, I can guarantee you, behind closed doors where Zelensky's leadership, his political leadership is telling him, look, how much longer can we afford to lose our citizenry? How much longer can we... Um, afford to have Russia in our territory, realizing that they may ultimately not depart. And militarily, I don't know that Ukraine has the ability to push Russia back across the border without an increase of NATO pressure and maybe even direct, as Frank indicated, direct NATO involvement with the US-led NATO coalition. I don't know that that's gonna happen. Those conversations, are probably taking place. And so he's got to go through the calculation of what it means to acknowledge. He's not going to sign a, a negotiation at this point, but to acknowledge that 15 to 20% of Ukraine may be lost, but we've maintained our sovereignty. We have won, as, as Frank has indicated, the battle of national will. Putin has lost that, but he may have gained a portion of Ukraine. So it's those public proclamations 
we also have to balance those against the seriousness of the private conversations that are taking place in all those elements of power across the board. Um, you alluded to it. There's a future, a potential future, where the war can end, but the territory is not, is either now Russian that they claimed or, you know, unlikely to be uh, reassumed by Ukraine. So the question from the audience is, um, why wouldn't the United States or NATO support Zelensky's efforts to push Russia completely out of Ukraine and of that territory? What is what are what is being weighed um, when it comes to U.S. or NATO support on that topic? Frank, sure. I think um, right up front. I mean, it, it's where is the red line? I mean, um, we have seen the hesitance uh, by the United States and NATO to give uh, to give tanks which would provide an advantage, though there's not a real shortage of tanks. I mean, uh, my son, who has been deployed over there for a long time, tells me that the Ukraine has almost as many tanks as the Russians do at this point in time, since most of the Russian tanks that were deployed are, in fact, now in the Ukrainian hands. Uh, the question becomes, are they good enough, lethal enough, have the right kind of systems to be able to do things? Then you find out that we uh, are not necessarily w willing to give certain munitions uh, to them, uh, you know, longer range, which would allow the Ukrainians to threaten uh, targets inside of Russia, staging bases, fuel depots, ammunition sites, things like that, that we would normally attack, uh, you know, deep in our enemy's rear in, in order to remove the capability for them to have the sustainment needed in there. And then we are also certain types of munitions. There are a number of people uh, advocating for certain types of more lethal munitions to be used. Uh, all of which everybody worries uh, could could elevate uh, the, the level of, of Russian response. But I mean, the Russian trigger, the only one they really have is this nuclear trigger at this point in time. I suppose they could use chemical weapons, but to what end? And so when we when we look at that, I mean, it really becomes an alliance and a uh, bilateral agreement issue with with some of the partners that are that are supporting otherwise uh, as to why we would not go in there. But I, I think one of the things that happens is it if we go in as part of a coalition, we play to Putin's uh, narrative uh, about NATO and about the real reason this is going on. He needs to create a threat to the Russian homeland in order to regain the national will of his own people. I mean, just watching the exodus and the lines out there. I mean, that's an extreme situation that I don't think we've, we've ever seen before. Uh, though we have to remind ourselves that during the Vietnam War, we did have plenty of people fleeing the draft in the United States as well who didn't support the war. So I think that's 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 a common common reaction to, to a, a mobilization and a draft that people haven't seen uh, in Russia since World War Two. But I, I think it's uh, a lot of it was fear in, in the beginning, uh, worry about whether or not Zelensky could be effective. And then our, our choice becomes, do we want to do we want to give him enough and maybe a lot more support than we have been both uh, with with deployment of, uh, of, of NATO troops uh, or different munitions uh, and see how the Russians react? I mean, you can only pull that nuclear trigger once before the world will condemn, uh, you know, uh, what's going on. So I actually think, you know, I've always been an advocate of push till you see them on the verge of all the things that we can do. And, and we're not there. I mean, we, we still have a little bit more to give uh, as far as weapon systems, but you see the alliance 
not completely supporting that. The German chancellor has said that they don't want Germany to give tanks. So part of this can be, all right, is there a fraying of the alliance that can come from this desire to give the Ukraine all they want and need to be able to push the Russians completely outside of their uh, their sovereign borders? You know, and bear in mind that um, if we maintain the type of support that we are, we have provided across the board, we being NATO, um, Russia still exists and has sanctuary. They can get across their border. They can refit. They can rearm. They can rest. They can recuperate. They can reintegrate. And then they get forces back in the fight with, with complete impunity. So what we see because of those restrictions that we've placed, we NATO powers have placed on the Ukrainians in terms of the use of the kit that we're providing them, provide sets the conditions for what we're describing, which is an elongated campaign that's not going to look much, much different. Right now, the Russians are not going to conduct some unimaginable at this point, great sweeping tank operation that engulfs the rest of the Ukrainian forces in the southeast, nor will the Ukrainians have some great operational maneuver that pushes the Russians back to the border and then ultimately across. We've, we are seeing the beginning of, if not the manifestation of, a frozen conflict, which is not going to be altered unless the dynamic of support and ends and what ends and means that we've, as we've discussed, is changed in some way. And just a, a follow on, uh, Rachel, before you, you ask the next question, there is a, a cost that hasn't yet become visible. Okay. I mean, a real dollar, a real pound, a, a real, you know, mark, a euro kind of cost here. We have given a lot of military equipment. Uh, to the Ukrainians. I mean, stingers, javelins, those have all come out of the inventory that we would use to defend NATO. Okay, those have come out of war stocks. We've, we've given equipment from all the different countries, you know, that, uh, that, that have like equipment to what the Ukrainians have, former Soviet style stuff. We've said we would replace all that. There's a budgetary cost coming due that just keeps building. Uh, the supply lines don't exist for uh, stingers. The supply lines don't exist for javelins. We haven't made a tank in, in, in a very long time. The different artillery munitions that we are giving people to use, we are depleting our current inventories. You know, at some point in time, however long this lasts, those assembly lines have to start. And what they do is they they weigh against NATO's modernization, NATO's m ability to train. So there's a there's a hidden cost not yet visible. You know, it's that part of the iceberg you can't see that's going to come due in every country over the next five years or so to replenish stocks to be able to continue to do what it is we say we do as part of our NATO charter. Over. Yeah, that is such. Speaking of the iceberg. We've talked a lot about um, the, the military aspects of this conflict, but we're leveraging the West versus Russia is are leveraging all elements of power, including, you know, the economic elements and, and vice versa. So, Peter, at this stage in the conflict, um, I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, who has the upper hand, what is next, what concerns you as this conflict continues to involved and really the impact is felt way beyond Ukraine's borders. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, and I think, you know, a couple of questions on what's going on with Nord Stream that it looks like it was potentially sabotaged. So given our view of the war, right, that there's almost no way this ends before the end of the winter, right? It's going to be some sort of slog. It's not a good country to take a lot of ground in the winter. 
this will probably be the peak kind of, you know, leverage that Russia has over Europe in terms of gasoline, natural gas, et cetera. You know, over the course of the next year, Europe will get some more things in. They'll, they're opening up some LNG plants. So this is really going to be, I think, Russia's, you know, peak leverage. So look for them to maximize this. And I've always thought a little bit about this war in terms of how much of this is just about not just the land and the traditional, but wanting more natural resources, right? And Ukraine has always been very rich in natural resources. Um, so I, I think that's the reason this goes on. And I, I'm going to finish with that in a minute. The two things that we're kind of watching develop is I think really sanctions have been fairly ineffective. Um, you look at almost any report and Russia's exporting just as much as they ever did. They're just um, shipping it out to different countries, right? To me, one of the key ones has been Brazil signed on to buy Russian diesel and they did that while the leader of Hungary was in Brazil. And so they're taking new customers. Clearly India just keeps coming up as a big outlier, right? In many ways, I think people view them as having a political system akin to our own or something, something we understand better, but they've made a clear decision that as one of the fastest growing economies in the world, that with their number of people, getting natural resources is their prime goal. And so they have engaged with Russia, clearly. They've also kind of straddling the fence on a lot of things. Um, one of our other generals recently spoke about how two months ago, India engaged in uh, naval exercises with us and Japan. Then a month ago, they engaged in naval exercises with Russia and China. So I think this view that sanctions have been helpful just hasn't turned out true. Chinese businessmen are moving into a lot of what's going on in Russia. Hotels have been sold. Hotels are filled. Their, their business is actually doing quite okay. It's just realigning. And we've talked about this for over a year, that all these autocratic nations, the resource-rich ones, are aligning more and more with China. And I think that's something, you know, the next stage of this would be if we see China potentially sell weapons to Russia. I think the one area that we've been able to do be pretty effective in terms of the sanctions is on high tech. It's reduced Russia's ability to repair and replace their equipment as they've lost in the field. So I'm definitely watching to see, does China take that next bold step? And rather than kind of tacitly watching what Russia is doing, become a little bit more engaged where they choose to sell their weapons because they may also want to see their weapons in action, right? They, in theory, have much better weapons than Russia has. They have true, you know, next generation weapons. They test them, they do all things, but maybe it'd be interesting to see how they're acting uh, with Russia. They actually now have a trade deficit with Russia. So I think that to me is where this is all shifting. We are going to have this realignment of the world into the autocratic nations in and around China. And we're going to have to re-engage with South America better, Central America, Mexico has got to be a big part. We've got to figure out what to do with places like Greenland that have huge opportunities. And that's, I think, how this war is going to shift. And the other thing, if we go back and kind of toss this back maybe to General Kerner or one of them, I think when we talk about tactical nukes, one thing that worries me more than anything else is that they may choose one to hit a sparsely populated area, but a resource-rich area, right? What if they found a way to detonate a small nuke over Ukrainians' pipelines, right? Those pipelines would probably be inoperable for years, decades, maybe. You know, people wouldn't even be able to go in to do the repair. So I'm a little bit more worried when they bring up the nuke that it's not even so much about the military, but that it would be to do something that would destroy natural resources that would hurt the Ukrainian economy while benefiting Russia's economy to the extent that they hold those natural resources and the prices go high. And they've clearly learned in the past three weeks that the Western society does not deal well with inflation. And I and I would say, Peter, um, if Russia was to use a tactical, if Russia was to use a nuke, let's not qualify it, 
but if Russia would to use a nuke, I mean, rule one of the use of the exchange of nuclear power, although it's academic, it's very, very much a theoretical discussion, but it's part of how we've grown and developed this weapon system. It's all about de-escalation. I think if a nuke was used in a, in a way that you described, or maybe over the Arctic, it's really a powerful, an incredibly powerful message. And oh, by the way, the United States and NATO now have a very strong decision to make. My, my thought on that is that were Russia to do that, then there would be there would be a US-led coalition. Conventional, there wouldn't be an exchange of nukes. We would not go down the WMD path, but there would be a conventional force injected on the ground in Ukraine and limited to the borders of Ukraine. It wouldn't be cross-border into Russia. I think when you when when you think about that, once he plays, should he choose to use a nuke? I mean, then the deterrent power of that to keep NATO and Western alliances from doing anything is gone. I mean, it kind of shatters that. It also opens up use to this other part of the bipolar world that we may be shifting to, you know, uh, uh, which which I think George Bush called the axis of evil. And a lot of those players are still in this alignment. They're just growing and they're trying to pick off folks as we we go forward. Um, You know, once you use it, it's done as a deterrent. So, I mean, it doesn't, it it will not stop uh, what you had hoped, which is a NATO uh, on the ground support, which I believe in, in short order, of course, you know, like like everyone, I believe the Russians would have gotten to Kiev in, in two days, which they had the capability to do, but did not. Uh, you know, we would be able to push them back across the borders that are there uh, rather quickly. Um, but it is uh, it, it's just kind of one of one of those things when you when you expend your deterrent, it no longer has deterrent value. Uh, and we open up a whole new world of potential nuclear uh, use as we move forward. So. If I could, Rachel, if I could real quickly go back to what Peter said. Peter, you've used this comment before, uh, correct me when I'm wrong, that to your point about sanctions and the efficient or effectiveness of the sanctions, um, and that the world is not really behind them and the result is not what we've anticipated. Didn't you say that there are more participants in the World Cup than there are in the sanctions? Yeah, I think that's something I've used just to kind of highlight that we all talk about these sanctions and how unified the world is, but really that's just not the case. And even Europe is still importing the things that they desperately need from Russia. So the sanctions, you know, I I think sounded great. We're never really going to be that effective. And so long as they found buyers for their natural resources, which they are, and ultimately, I think it also highlights, I don't think we're ever going to go back. And this, when I look at how NATO's responding, to me, Germany feels like they are acting as though they can go back to how business was with Russia, that this can somehow get all cleaned up and they can go back to buying natural gas and supplies from Russia. I don't think that's ever going to happen because China and Russia will build um, the facilities to distribute Russia's gas and um, oil to China. And they have these new customers. I think Europe is desperately is going to be cut off from Russian oil, natural gas, possibly forever, because Russia's found new customers. They're going to work with India, who's much easier, right? And they don't have to listen to India saying every day they want to be green. They don't want to do all this stuff. So I think Europe is going to have to you know, really spend a lot of money next year to develop all these alternative sources. They're going to have to get LNG. It's probably going to be very good for U.S. You know, exporters because we can turn things on and have this customer base. But I think that's an area that this whole switch and we can go back to is never going to go back. Um, and we talked about 
other part of that whole trigger was the minute that the U.S. effectively weaponized Russia's dollar reserves, that pushed all these other countries more and more towards China. Because why, if you are a bad actor that either has morals or a political system that we don't like, would you hold a lot of reserves in dollars knowing that we're willing to use that? So, yeah, I think the rest of the world is not as on board as we might think, um, just you know, reading our own headlines and kind of believing people think like us. And that's key to how this all plays out over the next few years and decades. And um, I want to pull the thread a little bit more on the uh, Nord Stream piece that you discussed, Peter. Lots of questions in um, the Q&A about that. General Kearney, do you have a sense of how that could have played out? Is it it's assumed sabotage by the Russians, but um, any insights on on that recent event? I think uh, that's the global assumption pattern. And then you see, it's interesting, the Russians kind of come right back and, uh, and, and accuse the Ukraine and the United States of doing the same kind of thing to sabotage that capability. Um, it, 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 victimization is required, I think, uh, inside of Russia to be able to say that people are doing things to them. So I think Again, it's it's almost like a false flag uh, opportunity where they're they're doing these things. They can claim somebody else is doing it, but it also you know is an economic uh, you know threat to to Europe that hey these these things are vulnerable. Uh, we can shut them down, uh, and, and and we can claim some other uh, issue for doing it. From what I understand, there were three separate explosions that occurred. Uh, you know, that were picked up by seismic uh, kind of events before they began to see the gas bubbles that kind of were visible uh, on the surface to, to evidence what, what had gone on. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, I, I think the jury's always out because high, highly pressurized systems can do that. But normally, once you have one break in a highly pressurized system, it relieves the pressure. It's just like your, your, your pressure cooker at home. Uh, you know, you're not going to see multiple breaks normally come from something like that unless there was an earthquake or something under the, under the sea. Over. You know, it's, a, it, it's weaponizing um, the economics of, of all of this. Look, the pipeline was outside of Denmark's territorial waters, yet Denmark, Denmark is an original NATO member. So as Frank indicated, it's crystal clear. We, we certainly don't know whether the Russians did that, but it doesn't fall into an act of war. It, it wasn't a, an attack against uh, a NATO partner. And if it only has economic implications, it, it's no difference. You know, it's a distinction without a difference. Economic challenges of a nation caused by a threat, is that different in terms of the interpretation of NATO? And it clearly is. We talk about attack, we're talking about a kinetic attack or a cyber attack. But what about immense economic impacts of one action against a, a NATO partner? Is everybody obligated to pile in? That's a legal question. I don't know the answer, certainly. Well, Peter, you've already touched on the fracturing of support, given the um, the suffering that is to be expected to be experienced in Europe this winter. I mean, is your view that an event of this variety will maybe just be a catalyst for fracture, fracturing support between Europe and NATO? Yeah, I mean, it would make logical sense if Russia did this because I think they don't want to get the gas into Ukraine, into Europe, but they don't want to necessarily be seen as being the bad person in that respect. 
So now they just can't deliver it. So they kind of, again, they set up this potentially false flag event that gives them, well, we would like to give Europe if the European suffering is bad, but we just can't because of this pipeline issue. So I think they've done a lot of that. And I think you are going to see parts of Europe maybe fracture. You're going to see, I think, the Baltics, who are very, very afraid of Russia, went ahead one way. You have German and German industry that might be a little bit more careful. The south of Europe is actually probably better positioned to go through some of this. So they may feel different you know, towards this. I think you've got the US that's supplying all this military equipment from afar. What, how, do, how long do we stay as interested and involved in this? Um, that's something Spider had said a long time ago, that you know, the US doesn't always have the longest attention span. So at what point do we get sick and tired of giving billions of dollars away every day when we potentially have some of our own problems? So I think there is that risk that you see this fractioning. Um, on the other side of it, maybe there's some evidence that DC might you might see some more moderates come together. And my hope has been on all of this that we would start seeing better planning. This also, I think, maybe addresses one of the questions um, from Zeke out there is that I think we need to go back and revisit on whether it's sustainable energy. What what are we are going to look like 20 years from now? How do we get there? And let's have a realistic. What power bases do we need? How do we keep you know from getting into trouble? Are you know, some of these choices the right choices? How do we do this so that we do not hit this? Um, I think all of the West should be doing. I think Europe's finally starting to do that. And you know, what will we mine here? What will we find? You know, we've gone through our own gasoline crisis here, and very few people want to talk about the fact that the, there's not been a true new refinery built in the US since the 70s. So, and much of our strategic oil reserves have to get shipped offshore to get processed into something that's usable. So. I think we've got to revisit a little bit of that. And I think, again, when we deal with the rest of the world, you know, the question was, how do we sell a vision? I think we've got to figure out what is our vision? How are we going to work with countries? What will we accept countries? And let's have reasonable timetables. Um, you know, General Stewart, I think, talks about this often, but, you know, he'd go into places in Africa trying to negotiate deals for commodities. And we'd demand this, this, and this. The dictator would say no. We'd come back a few years later do the same song and dance, nothing would happen. And then finally they'd say, oh, actually, no bother, don't talk to us. We've already sold these commodities to China. So we never really experienced, unlike Russia, where it was always a military, diplomatic and information war, they were never an economic power in any sense of the word. And China, I think, has become a massive economic power and we missed them using that as a tool. And that's something I think we have to sit back and how do we engage these countries that have lithium, cobalt, all the things we need and figure it out. And some of this even comes closer to home. Greenland was in the process of having several parts bought by China, and that only got tapped, caught in the last few minutes. So how do we do that? I, I think that's gonna be the shift is, um, and what scares me, don't wanna leave it on such a bad note, but we've often talked to the Academy about business follows the flag. And traditionally that meant, you know, we plant the flag somewhere and business develops around it because we bring laws, we bring customs, we bring rule and order. And I think unfortunately right now, business is following the flag, and our flag is coming closer and closer to the home. We're not as good at sticking it in the ground. And I think we've now completely pulled it out at a national level, really, with China, whether it's obvious, but I think really behind the scenes on national security, China is no longer our friend. We rejected F-35s because an alloy and a magnet in one of the engines came from China. So I think there's a lot going on in the national security that is pulling that flag backwards. And we've got to be careful we don't pull it too far back or we will lose access to all these other countries. Interesting. I think uh, the last time we really had a grand national strategy was during the Cold War. Uh, and if we move to two polar 
kind of uh, alliances that are out there, it will have to, it will drive us in that direction or, or an opportunity uh, to drive in that direction because we have not really had uh, an international strategy. And, and if you read the old strategies, it, it was really all about compelling, uh, you know, individual nations to do, do something uh, in our interest, not in their own. And I think the realization that in, nations do things in their own interest uh, ought to be slapping our, our government in the face here. I mean, India being a classic example, they're going to do what's in their best interest and they're going to trade with everybody they can trade with, going to work with everybody they can to keep all the doors open. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, the, the idea that you can win somebody to your side uh, through the, the logic that Peter talked about with the, the small African nations over there that, hey, do it because we said so that, that that doesn't exist anymore and we have not we have we really haven't had a, a good grand strategy uh, since uh, the cold war yeah i mean is it safe to assume that that influence doesn't exist anymore because there's other legitimate influential nations that you know are offering other incentives i mean that that so much of our influence around the globe was because we were a lone superpower post Cold War and post World War II. I think uh, to Frank's point, our our ability to to have a grand strategy and to coalesce around that was because we all had a shared enemy. It wasn't that we all, and as a result of that, the derivative of that is we all had we found out we had shared values. But what we had was this was this common idea of what the threat was. When that went away, we're suddenly the sole superpower, and we've been struggling. Frank's point, we've been struggling to figure out what, what grand strategy means because it's incumbent upon us to state what are the shared values, the shared desired in states that the coalition of the willing can come together and say, yep, I agree. Yet there is no compelling reason. There's no compelling reason to come together unless there's some significant guarantee of pain. And that's was that, that was, the beauty, frankly, the beauty of the Cold War and our ability to create this containment strategy and stay away from this horrible thing called the Soviet power. Um, we, we, we've lost that. I think we've lost that. I don't know when we're gonna get it back, but grand strategy is a skill set that has atrophied terribly. Do you think the events unfolding in Ukraine have that potential? Obviously they did in the short term and maybe with, and because I wanna get back to the nuclear issue, sir. There's a lot of interest in the Q and A about that. Um, does Putin's threatening to utilize a nuclear weapon proactively yes. organize the global community? And yes, it, absolutely. I mean, he's internationally vilified. He's too far out of bounds. I think the meeting with Xi in Uzbekistan a couple of weeks ago, um, who knows exactly what was said other than what Putin said their conversation looked like. But I'm sure Xi Jinping came to him and said, hey, look, man, yeah, look, China views the world through a business transactional filter. Um, Russia's trying to muscle its way into Ukraine and is failing, absolutely incompetence of the highest, highest order and an economy that's in the toilet. And China comes up to him and says, look, man, you got to get your act together. This needs to go away. And oh, by the way, don't expect me to come rescue you, maybe, unless you get your act together. Um, I don't want to back a loser. You're a loser right now. And so everybody else who's looking at Putin having to deal with Putin across the board and every nation globally is having to deal with Putin can come together with some 
shared desires to get it done. In other words, here's a threat. It happens to be tactical right now, but it has these immense strategic implications. Let's get our act together. Let's come together and address those. Yeah, I, I like that you don't, that you tend not to use the qualifier of tactical because regardless of the weapon system, the implications are only one thing and that's, you know, massively strategic. So to that end, and to answer a question from the audience, General Kearney, you know, we're, we're not in the prophecy business, but can you conceptualize um, a situation that would lead to the use of a nuclear weapon? You know, I think that's the fear of pushing someone like Putin too far into a corner that they would then utilize it. But, it, you know, is there a circumstance that you could see him utilizing one and, you know, seemingly feeling justified to do so? Well, I think uh, two conditions probably have to exist for that to happen. He's really got to be crumbling at home. Uh, and uh, the, the pressure that comes from the hardliners inside of Russia to kind of get things done uh, to keep himself in power, I think is, is one answer. And I think uh, grand success by the Ukrainian military at continuing to push them uh, heightens the, the threat to be able to use uh, a nuclear uh, you know, uh, weapon in order to de-escalate and, and stop and get to the negotiating table before he loses. It is part of their doctrine, which I think we've discussed before, to use nuclear weapons to escalate uh, the, the level of conflict in order to have a, a bargaining chip. But I, I do think all the other things that have been said, should he do, do that, uh, the deterrence goes away. And the other thing is uh, the nations of the world back away. I mean, one, they're all you know, not saying a lot of condemnation. They want to do things. But it's pretty hard to, uh, to, to support an individual leader in a nation that's used uh, a nuclear weapon for no good reason other than to uh, not, not want a sovereign nation to keep its sovereignty uh, and to stay in power. And I think those are the two core assumptions that we would have to make just to see that occur. Yeah, and the irony is not lost on me that this conversation is being held in tandem with an energy crisis that is now potentially going to be embracing nuclear to provide the energy requirements of, of the globe. So Peter, what are your thoughts on that topic as far as, you know, what is, what is the way forward for nuclear from an energy perspective, especially given the backdrop of the, the military element? Yeah, I think um, it should get traction. I think you've seen uranium prices things go up because I think when you look at what could be a core baseline that gets us through the next 20, 30, 40 years, as we you know have more and more sustainable energy, I think nuclear has to be part of that discussion, whether it's smaller nuclear plants. I think General Kearney, and we've spoken about this before too, it's, you know, there's such a bad reputation for nuclear. And certainly in the US, the only real accident was ever was uh, Three Mile Island where no one was actually hurt. It was fully contained. And that was a bad technology that wasn't even that good at the time it was built. It was situated in an awful spot so that the rivers were flowing into major cities. Again, that stuff's not done anymore. So we have kind of this, you know, on the one side, there's a huge fear towards that. And yet they exist. Um, I know we've talked with a bunch of the naval officers too, right? There's 200 some odd nuclear powered you know, naval vessels. So they're in harbors all the time. They're, you know, if you're, they're going to be around and they've gone on without incident. So, you know, there are people working on newer technology, smaller nuclear plants. I think that's going to have to be a big part of it. 
I think we're going to have to have some realistic assessments too. And, you know, and we just passed the um, supposed inflation fighting bill. Um, you know, it's heavy on solar and things yet. Most of the solar panels are made in China. They are made in China in a very, very dirty way. So it's, you know, our, our, what are we truly getting? And I think it's time to have some real thought and discussion where these things work best, where there's efficient. Um, you know, I'm not hopeful that the politicians across the nation can really get their act together to do that. Um, but that's something I think we need to see inward. Just regulation as a whole has to change here a little bit. When we go and talk to chemical companies in particular, but energy companies, you know, they're like, it takes years to get regulatory approval, years to get the plant. And then something can happen between that multi-year period where the person originally gave you the regulatory approval has lost their seat or changed views. And so it's been very difficult, I think, to maintain our own energy self-sufficiency chemical business. So I think we're going to have to sit back and really figure out how do we do this? Where's the right things? How do we, you know, again, how do we better incorporate maybe the gasoline stations into if we're going to do charging stations? There's just so much that's been haphazard. And I think the last four or five years in Europe was probably, you know, by far the worst of this. You put something out there, any real discussion just gets shouted over and you go down these paths that clearly just haven't worked in Europe. And I think run some of that same risk here. Um, so I think we're going to see nuclear. I think you're going to see people figuring out how to use cleaner coal. You're going to figure out all these things because just kind of wishing something would happen isn't going to make it true. And we've been a little bit, I think, too wishful on sustainability and not enough thoughtful planning and building out. And that is going to be you know, creating jobs, but it's going to be inflationary. All these products, whether it's windmills, um, solar panels, or traditional energy sources require huge investments in resources to get them you know, up and running. It's not just that, Peter. It's interesting. You know, the nuclear power it can be used for desalinization, water purification in a world that has an ever-increasing dirty water uh, problem, and it's going to need to do something about it. And that's the kind of power level you need to do things. Uh, I've always, I've, I've often said, and I would defer to our naval colleagues in the uh, in the geopolitical group, but you know, half of those 200 vessels are in port at any given time undergoing maintenance. I'm not sure why they're not plugging those things into the power grids in every city where they're docked. Boy, how what a what a big support! Now I don't know how much work is done on the nuclear power point every time they come in uh, and are sitting there, but uh, it just it, it would be just a big positive uh, opportunity to do things. Um, uh, one to change the, the position of many in the United States about nuclear power, you know, given the success the Navy's had, and uh, it's sitting in their ports not powering anything. Uh, you know, what what a waste of energy potential over. And I'll just take one more quick, quick thing. You know, we've gone almost 50 minutes on this and we haven't mentioned Iran. And there you have a yet another country that's a little bit off the radar screen, right? We, we can only digest so much. You got Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan. You've got Iran probably creating that power to do something you know, dangerous. And they're a little bit off the radar screen with everyone's focus. You know, is that a country we should be worried about in that respect in terms of their nuclear development? Heck yes. Absolutely, we need to be. I mean, the, the concern being is when the United States left the JICPOA and then in the interregnum between when we departed and where we are today, the JICPOA is no longer relevant, it would have to be a JICPOA too. There would have to be other conditions that we would have to that would have to be met. Foremost among those is inspections and unannounced inspections almost where, whenever and wherever those inspections need to take place by the IAEA, and that was prohibited. 
in the previous um, agreement. If Iran continues to develop the ability to enrich uranium to a level that reduces the breakout period between acknowledgement and when they could probably militarize that, you're going to see Saudi Arabia moving in the same path and you're going to see Israel raise its hand and say, we are tremendously interested. And the United States and Israel would have to have some type of a tacit agreement that says, let's discuss what actions need to be taken in order to arrest that. And then the Saudis are going to end up with some type of nuclear capability. And the last thing the world needs to have is Iran and Saudi Arabia as two nuclear powers. Yeah, I think that that is uh, an interesting theme that we've touched on, General Marks. You know, every time I see you, whenever you know, history teaches us, whenever there is stratification or instability, it kind of breeds more instability. Um, and, and so I think it is, as Peter alluded to, important to not take your eye off of other areas or bad, you know, where bad actors exist to uh, essentially steal a marsh. Um, in the last nine minutes that we have, I, I want to pivot back to Ukraine just to make sure that we're addressing the audience's questions. An interesting one that came in um, is really specific to uh, some uh, the tactical elements of the Special Operations Forces of Russia. Um, General Marks or Kearney, whoever has thoughts on the topic, are you surprised that Zelensky has essentially eluded Russian Special Operations, you know, killer capture mandate? Um, and you know, what is the plan for uh, a succession plan for Ukraine, just given the impact of Zelensky's leadership? I'll, I'll defer to Frank. He's the he's the the special ops guru. And he indicated he's got a son who's in this cut from the same cloth, who's being get, been engaged in this thing from the outset, Frank. I think uh, it was an opportunity missed early in the conflict. Uh, we've created a, a, you know, a global icon. Uh, and to take him out at this point in time, in my opinion, would be about the same as using a nuclear weapon. Uh, the world would look at that. I mean, he's been the only person who's been able to come and talk at the UN General Assembly remotely after the Russians were denied the opportunity to have Putin do the same thing. So we've created a, a persona around him that he is probably too big to assassinate at this point in time. I believe because they thought they wanted him to capitulate and that he would, they kept him alive, you know, the actor in government early on, but he has played well above his, uh, uh, his fighting weight and has created an aura around him that kind of leaves him in a point where I don't think the, the Russians can do what they would normally do, you know, having poisoned, shot, killed some, some different way of getting at it without the world opinion, uh, you know, not, not, not supporting what was going on. Uh, and, you know, it's 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 sort of like those those movies of old, you know, kings shouldn't be killing kings. I mean, it's just kind of one of those things that that shouldn't happen. So that's my sense. They have the capability. I believe they probably could have penetrated the organization and done that. I believe they had hoped and believed he would capitulate. And so they wanted him in there to do that. Uh, and so now I think uh, th th it's it's not a smart move at all. And to ensure that our team is not taking our eye off other parts of the globe. Um, General Kerning, give it to you first. Given the backdrop of Russia and Ukraine, how do you think China views Taiwan at this time and any potential attempt to take the island? You know, it, it would be easy to see uh, 
uh, what we're seeing in here is a predicate for what China might do with Taiwan. But I think China's already made their decision on what they're going to do. They are waiting for the appropriate timing to do it. They would prefer to do it uh, through military complete domination so that there is no ability for the United States to get close. Uh, they are achieving that with uh, their missile range to be able to put carriers, Guam and all the places we could stage uh, resources uh, out of distance uh, of being able to take any action at a given time. And quite honestly, they know exactly what's going on with our carrier battle groups, where they are, what numbers they are, and what, what amount of power we would need. So I think they will wait for the appropriate time and place, and they will deliver the blow uh, at such a time that it can be done quickly, rapidly, and without the United States being able to do the response that we say we might want to do. Um, so I, 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 I don't think anything that's playing out here today uh, does anything but have it, it, it pushes it to where she says, I need to be able to do this such that I can still not suffer the same economic pain that the Russian is. He's learning a lot, but I think uh, none of what's happening here or the outcome of Ukraine and Russia will have an impact on his desire and when he ultimately uh, makes an effort to return Taiwan to, uh, to China. I, I think the incompetence of the Russian military has given Taiwan some breathing room. Let's be frank. China needs to make sure they've got a similar, they've got to make sure that they don't suffer what the Russian military suffered. So they're, they're doing a lot on their part to ensure their readiness and their preparedness, as Frank described, is there. Um, I differ from Frank in that I think the ultimate solution vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan will be some form of a that won't include the use of kinetic force, but the, over, the threat of an overwhelming, overpowering capability to crush Taiwan, which would destroy Taiwan, quite frankly. Um, and China might end up with a moonscape. But at the, at the end of the day, China wants to make sure that Taiwan is acknowledged, is acknowledged, not brought back. They don't think it ever went anywhere, but is acknowledged still being a part of Beijing, under Beijing's thumb. And yeah, some of the stuff we're seeing in the global economy is also going to help, I think, along that effort spider, where as we start building more semiconductor plants, as Europe starts building more semiconductor plants, the power and importance of Taiwan for the rest of the world will diminish somewhat, and China will surely be reminding them of that every day. And China's own semiconductor business has been growing. So they are going to put economic pressure, political pressure, they're sure trying to influence the various you know, parties and the elections there. So I think there's a lot going on. But some of what we're doing for our own safety and our own national security will probably be bad for Taiwan's national security because it will decrease some of their importance to us over time. Right. And unfortunately, I think it's one of those things we have to do. You know, it's multi-generational semiconductors. Not all semiconductors are made the same. Taiwan kind of leads the charge. Everybody else is in a race to get there. So you're right. There's going to be some time. But the guarantor of Taiwanese, of Taiwanese security right now, there are two. Russian incompetence in battle and TSMC. Do you feel like our allies in the region play a significant role in deterrence given the way that that has been organized? I do, absolutely. I think we have, my view is that we have strong enough, we have a presence in the Pacific that is robust and partnerships that are robust and, moder and have been modernized. It's just, again, it goes back to Frank's original point. It's all about national will. Will Japan want to jump into a fight with the United States to preserve the independence and sovereignty of Taiwan, albeit not recognized in the UN, but their independence? 
um, the South Korea are going to do the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. One of the interesting points, uh, one of our other advisory board members, General Robeson, has made in the past is the defensive posturing and position on Taiwan has changed over the last five years. It almost feels like, you know, especially recently, that they've learned something from the conflict in Ukraine as well, that the same way that China would want to ensure a swift victory and not a protracted conflict, Taiwan is trying to establish how do we ensure a protracted conflict should this invasion ever occur. So as an old defensive position used to be defending the beaches, they have retreated to the mountains to essentially ensure a protracted conflict should one ever exist. So an interesting insight from one of our other advisory board members. Um, yeah, well, I'll just add one last thing, Rachel, because I think while we're all our focus right now really is China, Taiwan, China, Sri Lanka, they're busy there. They've done this deal with the Solomon Islands. Well, that lets them expand in that area. And the Solomon Islands in the past month have rejected um, access to a U.S. Coast Guard vessel and a U.K. naval vessel. So, well, you know, China, I think, is very good at the sleight of hand. You know, watch what we're doing over here and we're going to keep doing things elsewhere. So I think we've got to watch what goes on in that region. And I am seeing a lot of you know, large companies really questioning what's going on there. How safe is it to be in Cambodia, Thailand, all these smaller offshoots? And I think more and more people are looking at Japan as a potential alternative because of their size, because of their you know, potential strength. So uh, the geopolitical arena is changing both around how we have to deal much more with North-South. I think everyone's plans for what Southeast Asia was going to look like 10 years down the road, I think it's a little bit more up in the air given what's going on the past few years with China on their own terms, and now as they're kind of expanding a little bit. Yeah, that's an important point. We're not the only nation vying for influence uh, in the region, and some more effectively than others. Um, we are at the top of the hour now and out of time. I want to thank everyone for joining today's conversation. A lot of really good questions in our Q&A portion, and I'll be sure to um, follow up on some of those that did not get answered on today's call. If um, you have any more questions that didn't get, a, get answered, please reach out to us at info at academysecurities.com. We really appreciate you taking some time with us today and we hope that the conversation um, led to some interesting insights for you all and we look forward to the next engagement. Have a great day. Thank you.